We're nine months out from the release of ChatGPT, which awakened the broader public to the possibilities of generative AI. After the initial hype, what are the areas in which excitement about generative AI is warranted? I'm excited to publish a panel discussion on this topic that I participated in. Matt Dupree, the CEO of Atlas, organized and moderated the conversation. Jonathan Pedoim, CEO of PromptLayer, and Vijay Umapathy, Senior Director of Product at Heap, were also panelists. We discussed what exactly is the value of ChatGPT? What are some examples of where generative AI has failed to live up to initial expectations? And what are some emerging categories of generative AI where it's proving to be truly useful? You can listen to the conversation or else read the lightly edited transcript below. Enjoy. I'm excited to moderate a panel of folks to talk about AI and product strategy. So first, we're going to have Jonathan, who's the founder of Prompt Layer. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. You've seen like a lot of interesting use cases for LLMs, like as a part of uh, building out Prompt Layer. And so really excited to have you here and kind of get your insights on the state of things. Uh, next, we're also going to have Allison Pickens, AI-focused investor, former COO of Gainsight. Uh, and so really excited to have her perspective, given kind of her background. And then finally, we'll also have Vijay, the director of product at Heap. Heap is doing some interesting things with LLMs and, and thinking really in a nuanced way about uh, prioritization and, and things like that. So really excited to, to have, um, have his perspective. Uh, great. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll start, let's start off actually with something Jonathan said in his talk. So he, Jonathan, you said that like the AI hype is kind of calming down a little bit. And I think there's, there are other kind of signals of this that you've, aside from what you said, so like, I think I saw a Reuters article about chat GPT usage being down. I think there's been, you know, um, some decline of usages for other like AI native startups. So I'm curious, let's start with this. Let's just start with, do folks think that there's, that that's true? Do they agree with Jonathan? Like, do we think that there's, the hype is dying down a little bit, or is this just like some weird seasonality? Uh, any thoughts on this? I could dive in a bit. I, I, I can't say I'm a macro expert or an expert on trends, but I can share like my sort of limited perspective. I think probably with the chat GPT usage decline specifically, there's probably some element of seasonality to it with students, you know, taking off the summer. I think students were probably a pretty significant percentage of total usage. I think there might be a part of this as well, which is that it seems likely that ado major adoption cycles like this kind of are not linear, but actually are a little bit more bumpy than we would expect, particularly because I think people are trying to figure out how to incorporate LLMs into their workflows. I, I think that's actually a huge opportunity for the future and for a lot of startups as well, which you know, we can talk more specifics later. But you know, the thing about ChatGPT is that it's a siloed tool. But if I'm trying to use it in my marketing in creation of content for sales or customer success use purposes, use cases, there might be, you know, more purpose-built tools for that. I don't think it was ever a reasonable assumption that like the world was going to stop using the rest of the internet and only interface through the like information through like a chat window and like chat GBT. Um, Like I know, especially when they released plugins, like there was like some people were really hyped about that. But I think like, frankly, um, you know, if you go back to like UX, basics right like you don't want to have this high friction experience to give an llm the right context and so i think ChatGPT has probably inspired a lot of companies to realize the usefulness of llms and i think we're just getting started on the value of llms and you're right like a lot of these companies are trying to figure out how to integrate it 
into their workflows because that is the easiest way to give the right context to these models to actually get value. Yeah, that makes sense. So you guys kind of have more like an, you think it's like an S-shaped thing. Like it's not like, you know, it's just going to go. Or like ChatGPT is not a good measure, right? Like I think, I mean, like I don't think any of us really care about it. I was like, as like, like, yeah. like daily active users as like a measure of the usefulness of LLMs, I think is like not a useful exercise. I yeah. love it. I think the primary value of ChatGPT was to educate the broader lay public on what LLMs can do to change their lives. And what's more interesting, I think, is again, the more like purpose-built applications to come. I think it's likely that a lot of folks got pretty excited about LLMs for a period and started to try out some use cases and then realized that the workflow wasn't sufficient. For example, several months ago, my husband and I decided to geek out on a Saturday night and just like try out Midjourney for the first time. And if you use Midjourney, it's not built with like a particular user in mind, um, particularly not a lay person. We tried it out for a few hours. I eventually like hired an intern to kind of like poke around and see if there were use cases for my fund or portfolio companies. But after that initial attempt, I think I'll probably wait until there's like some application that's like built into my day to day. I see. That makes sense. Jonathan, did you have any thoughts? For us, or at least for, from our perspective, probably there's two empirical things. We do see a transition of more mature users from just like people flooding in hobbyists, hackers that were coming in at the beginning. So there's like maybe less volume, but the quality is like now in real companies that are coming through our door and talking to us. So that's one thing. And then I'll say another thing empirically from my like non-technical friends or like older people I know, like in community and stuff like that, when ChatGPT was coming out, everybody was just talking about, it. oh, I used it for this email. I used it to write my daughter's entrance letter to this like camp or something like that. And then now, like I even had a few people come to me, they're like, yeah, man, Chachi didn't do so well on this task, that other task. So like now I think the general public that was like flooding in has started to see a tiny bit like, okay, can I use this for my, like I have a friend who's going into medical school and he's using this for his like, you know, application letters or something like that. Like, yeah, I could use it here. And now he realizes he can't use it everywhere. So there's a little bit of that, but to summarize, definitely a maturity of the users that are coming through our door, a lot more mature companies coming. Yeah, thanks for that observation. That's interesting. Now that you mentioned it, I've noticed something similar. Like some of the folks that have signed up for our wait list early on, they were like, oh, I just saw you in like the AI newsletter. And like, they're not, they don't work for a particular company. Like they're just kind of messing around. Um, and that, that's been less true lately. So I think that's an interesting observation. So moving on a little bit, I think we kind of already got an answer to this. We, like, it seems like the group consensus is that ChatGPT is like basically a demo or a toy. It's like not really serious, but I'm curious if there, if people do think there are any use cases where ChatGPT will like replace more traditional uses of the internet. So like people were saying this about Google for a while. I think that's like worn off, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious if there is any sliver of, of use case or usage that'll be displaced by ChatGPT. Cheating on homework. All right. Yeah, fair enough. That's about the answer I would expect to give what y'all said earlier. That's a good one. What was that? There was like something. Oh. Wasn't there a professor that asked ChatGPT if people were cheating and it said yes or something and then it gave people zeros? Did people see this? Did I make this up? Did I hallucinate this? I think I saw something like this. All right, all right. Nobody remembers I hallucinated it. Sorry. It's tricky. I think it's, I, I honestly, I can't think of a whole lot of them because in a lot of these cases, you're inevitably going to get better by providing better context. And you're only going to do that if you're embedded in actual workflows that have that context. Sure. And so I, like... Yeah, I think it, I think the end state is like very few things actually have like makes sense in 
ChatGPT and not in a separate tool. I love it. I wish I met somebody last week who was like, this is the end of the internet. Like everybody's just going to use ChatGPT. And I wish that he was in this room so that you guys could uh, duke it out. But um, anyway, Jonathan, did you want to, did you? I think for me, at least personally, as someone who codes, like I still use ChatGPT for some coding questions. It's a good UX for that, in my opinion. What about integrating in your IDE? Though? Like, I, like, I feel like, for example, sometimes if I'm like writing, I was just playing around with this like a few weeks ago. But I'm writing something in a language I'm like not that intimately familiar with, and I'm like going to make mistakes. I will like paste something into ChatGPT, or I'll, I'll ask ChatGPT to like write me a boilerplate starting point, right? It'll do that. And then, you know, inevitably you reach a point where you get an error, right? And then I go into my terminal and I copy paste the error that I found. And I said, I ran into this error. What do you think I should? But like that step of hopping out of my context into my separate terminal application, copy pasting it back in, like not necessarily having a good notion of the history of all that. Like that's like a lot of work I was doing that if this was just in my IDE, like this is why I think like Copilot and like all these other tools are going to be the center place to do this, right? Like, yeah. All right. I agree. We figured it out. ChatGPT is just demo. It's done. All right, cool. So I, I mean, we, we hinted a little bit, I think, at the answer to this question too. But I'm curious, like, what folks take is on whether current LLM capabilities are like over or underrated. So like, Jonathan, you suggested that people are starting to calibrate on this a little bit more. Uh, maybe there's, you know, there's, the expectations are not crazy. Or maybe it's just right. Like, maybe people, maybe you feel like people understand what these things are now. Uh, so let's start there. Like, do we think they're over or underrated currently? I think they're overrated in the area of where there's precision that's required in the answer or some kind of convergent thinking on like, meaning like thinking about concrete solutions. Interestingly, there's been this emerging category of companies that have been trying to help people get access to their company's data, like, you you know, to query the data and say, you know, how many of my users gave us, you know, a net promoter score of this or, you know, what have you. And I think, you know, the expectations there were pretty high. And I think it's hard for these companies to meet those expectations, because really, when you're chatting with generative AI, um, you're chatting with someone who is supremely creative and is more attuned to divergent thinking. That's a really interesting point. Okay, so overrated in this kind of convergent thinking area specifically. I think that's right. And I like if I could say a little bit about what we're doing, like we're we're trying to use LLMs to help people learn how to use software. And I think a part of the decision to like make that our mission is really a recognition of the limitations of like a more ambitious, you know, like you could you could try and make LLMs that would like just use the software outright. And that requires a kind of convergent thinking that I just don't think is there yet. Um, and so I, I, I agreed there. Um, any other thoughts from other folks? I totally second this notion. Like, I mean, so I, I work at a product analytics company. And so like we are, we are constantly exposed to everyone being obsessed with the like text box interface to doing all analytics. And uh, yeah, I, I completely agree that it's an environment where the cost of hallucination is really high. It takes a lot of effort to build trust in data. And it takes very little effort to erode that trust. I do think, for example, tools that have code as an input or like, for example, like if you have like a SQL runner, right? Or if you have like something that's like really just, you know, has something that's like syntactically specific that the average person may not be that good at. I think LMs can be really helpful with with like giving you a leg up into those kinds of inputs. But even then, it comes with a lot of 10 caveats. Like an LLM to, for example, input SQL into like a reporting tool, um, I think is solving two problems and it's doing one of them a lot better than the other. 
uh, is solving a workflow automation problem of generate like, you know, functioning SQL code, right? Um, and it's probably going to save you a lot of time there and do a decent job of it. But like, is it referencing the correct events? Is it like, you know, it's like all the little nuanced pieces that actually get you to like, is this the right answer? Um, I think those are the areas where like those kinds of products are probably going to struggle a lot. Um, and so that's why I actually think that um, they may be overrated out of the box, um, but underrated if you if you put in the right investments in creating the right APIs that are underlying, um, that are, that are exposing access to that data. I think if you do a good job of that and, and, uh, and you invest a lot in that infrastructure of like, what can I do to give the LLM the cleanest, most reliable data set I can to reduce hallucinations? I think like, I think in those respects, people may be underrating how useful it can be in the long run. Yeah, some of what Zach was just talking about was like kind of investing in like the supporting infrastructure to make these LLMs really effective. And um, I do think you're right that it could be underrated, like kind of taking that tack. It's kind of like a all or nothing. Like if ChatGPT is an AGI, like I'm not interested, you know, it's like kind of the the uh, the sentiment, which is um, which is misguided, I think. Okay, so I'm curious, like, actually, yeah, this conversation flowed really nicely with like the flow of questions that I wrote, which I didn't use ChatGPT for, by the way. <laughs> uh, but I'm curious if you guys have seen like any emerging kind of technical or product patterns to deal with the limitations of LLMs. So like Vijay, you you touched a little bit on building supporting infrastructure to make sure the right data is available to the LLMs. But if there are any other patterns, technical or product that you've seen, would love to see or would love to hear about that. Good prompt engineering, right? So like having feedback loops where like you see in production where the problem is occurring and then addressing that, whether that be prompt engineering, fine tuning, those types of things. So there's that like feedback loop in the wild of like, you know, making sure hallucination don't happen and the system's not questioning or, or doing the wrong type of data selection. There's also people trying very, very hard to come up with test sets and, and, and metrics to look at that will kind of like be able to tell you how well this will do in the wild. Although I'm not, I'm not sure if like we've found something that could work and be as flexible as people need it to be in production beyond just letting it run in the wild and, and, and seeing where it makes mistakes. So when you say like looking at the actual behavior in production, you're almost talking about prompt observability or something like that. Like being able right. to see that's, that's interesting. Is that a part of what prompt layer does? Yeah, that's, it's big yeah. part of what we do is we have the feedback loop from, you know, iterating on your prompts to seeing how it responds, right? In, in production. For example, if you're, you're a chatbot and you didn't anticipate that customers would use a specific type of language or something like that, and that triggers this LLM to have a response that you don't want, right? Mm -hmm. So you see that in production, you anticipate it, you didn't anticipate a specific edge case. None of that edge case occurred. You have that data to adjust your prompt in order to deal with it. I see. That's interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you also mentioned test cases. Like I'm hearing that a lot. Like, so what, one thing we haven't talked about is this idea of prompt drift, where like you have a prompt that works at one point and then it stops working. And I asked Zach about this actually in the last session, and he also brought up this idea of test cases and enabling folks to see when something stops working. Those, those definitely seem like patterns, like given that Zach and you brought it up and then I actually spoke with another person a couple of weeks ago at another conference about trying to set up some sort of test case or test harness for, for these sorts of things. Anything from you guys, Vijay or Allison? You know, on the subject of what's the emerging like technical or product landscape for like solving for hallucinations and other things, I do think it'll be interesting to see what kind of guardrails products are built over time. And, 
you know, I've talked to some entrepreneurs who I think are interested in solving that as a horizontal problem. Like, how do we just make sure there's like a universal guardrail? I think that's really unlikely. More likely it'll be very catered to specific use cases. For example, I encountered a company called Nomos the other day, which is initially focused on creating compliance guardrails for financial services companies in particular. So let's say you're a consumer, you're interested in certain banking products, you're talking with a chatbot about what products might be useful. That chatbot needs to say certain things about the cost of the potential investment opportunities and what the returns might be. It, it needs to be in compliance with certain company standards as well as legal standards. That's like a very specific use case. You could imagine financial services companies plugging into some kind of API and in order to access Nomos and then maybe like, like having the Nomos brand on their mm. company websites so that people know like they're protected by Nomos for this specific thing. But likely it's not just going to be Nomos. There's going to be other categories of like, you know, sort of guardrails that need to be built. And that might, again, build like great brands around their trustworthiness. That Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that does fit a little bit too with Zach's talk before, like the, a lot of the guardrails that he discussed, some of them are generalizable, but they they feel like pretty specific to what they're doing. Um, so that that makes a lot of sense. But Jay, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I think like, so we're, we're a little like earlier, we're in like the POC stage, right? And one of the things that the way we're kind of doing things, kind of to, I think one of the points um, that those made earlier is uh, trying to not test in like demo aware cases, but instead like, um, kind of creating creating distribution and actually like creating as large data sets as we can. So for example, um, like when we look at a given use case, we'll try and generate a, we'll start with maybe a test set of like one or two examples of something um, and then create test data, then create several variations of prompts, right? And then test those different prompts. Really, we're not at the point yet where we're, I mean, now I kind of want to go look up prompt layer. Uh, <laughs> uh, but like, you know, as we scale, I think we'll get to the point where like, right now we're doing a lot, of, a lot of this in the spreadsheet, right? But like over time, as we scale, we'll probably move to more systematically testing out lots of different prompts for that domain. That if the domain looks promising, um, start to scale out the data set accordingly, right? And then try to make the data set more and more representative of, of the real thing. Um, and then like kind of separate from that. Uh, and, and by the way, um, one other, one other thing is, is in terms of like the way we're, going about building these is as we get directional signal that a certain domain is going to probably click really well, um, we're using that to actually prioritize the infrastructure investments um, accordingly. Right? So like um, if you're looking at like in an analytics tool, querying versus data governance, if the data governance use cases actually seem more promising and reliable, we will prioritize building more robust APIs for data governance over querying, right? Like we haven't gotten to like a lot of those decision points yet, but like that's how we're thinking about it and approaching it is like being kind of systematic because it is really like I'm, if there are any product people watching you, it's like very easy to like toss 50% of your roadmap and like just be like, oh, I'm so cool. Let's go do it, right? Um, and then and then you end up like, you know, really sacrificing a lot of impact. Um, and so I think it's very important to like test methodically as you go because um, the technology is evolving really fast, but it's also at the same time, really easy to burn time um, on something that, that doesn't bear fruit when it's actually very easy to test. Sure. So, and, and just to be clear, you're prioritizing the infrastructure investments so that you can provide the proper context for the LLM. Exactly. But we're manually doing that in the near sure. term for, um, for like proof of concepts. Sure. Lot of things that scale, right. nail it and scale it, right? And like that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and also like the other lever too that we look at is like for the same task, 
how did cheaper models versus more expensive models perform? Sure. Although, although it's interesting too, it's like those gaps are starting to uh, go down, right? Like the, a lot of the, like the more performant, uh, more capable models are getting, you know, exponentially cheaper. So. Well, yeah. And, and also, I mean, there are some cases, like I talked about this in my talk, like there are some cases where like three, five does better than four. And so it's like, not, it's not even like true that four is always better. Gets the right answer and it's cheaper is what I mean. I, by the way, I do see one common pattern, at least in like products that have productionized these things. I have seen like, so either you take, I think everyone is kind of on the approach of like, I think most of what is out there is hitting OpenAI's APIs. Like it's the, the fastest way to get into production, right? Fastest way to like to, to ship something reasonable. And I think there's kind of like a couple categories. Like one is they are just going for it with like a full chat domain. And like it's, it's if chat is the relevant interface and domain for what you're doing, like maybe like support automation type things, then like, you know, they're just sort of doing it very directly. The other type is like, they're basically using, uh, I'll think about that a little bit more. I totally forgot. No worries. Yeah. It's tough because stuff's complicated. I think we can move on to the next question and hopefully Vijay will think of it before we get too deep into it. I got several minutes to try to remember. That's right. Vijay, you hinted at this just now, like an obvious mistake to make with LLMs and product strategy is to just like throw away your roadmap and like build the shiny things um, and not really be thoughtful about it. So that's, a, that's kind of an obvious mistake, but I'm curious, like what other mistakes people are seeing as folks try to incorporate LLMs into their products? Or, you know, Allison, maybe you could give more of the like mistakes that you're seeing AI native startups do. Maybe you could give some of that perspective. Yeah, I think actually related to what BJ was saying, I think there were there are a number of companies that might have gotten started in 2022. They're not, you could call them like pre-chat GPT wave, but they're still young companies that were in their pursuit of product market fit. And then the GPT thing became, you know, evidence to everyone. And they felt the need, like their board was saying, you know, you have to look into this. You have to figure out how to use GPT. So they diverted their focus away from the search for product market fit toward how to just make sure that they have GPT mm. like embedded in the product in some way, like maybe a chat interface. And I think that's a distraction. I think if there's a real way that you can take out costs for your customers or draw attention in a big way to your app, because actually I think there are a lot of products that were built before the GPT era, but then suddenly got traction because they use GPT. Like actually Gamma.app is a great example of this. They were founded, I think in 2021, but then got like 10,000 new users per day in the several weeks after their launch a couple months ago because they relaunched basically like with generative AI. That's an opportunity. Taking out meaningful costs or adding a lot of value for your customers through GPT, like meaningful opportunity. But if it's not on your path to searching for product market fit, it's a distraction in my opinion. Sure. By the way, I remembered the thing I was saying earlier. The, uh, okay. <laughs> the, you the can other, work in artfully. Don't use ChatGPT to help. Exactly. The, the other pattern I was saying, which which is kind of like not super surprising, is I think a lot of people are trying opt-in versus opt-out uh, or like default interfaces that like you. So like instead of like summarizing everything on a page automatically for you, they will like make you ask for a summary um, because that not only gives them a simple feedback loop of like, is this delivering value, which I think is like, I think that's actually a very good thing. It's also controlling costs, but like, so that's just like another pattern I've kind of observed and seen. In tools. But, Got it. And I can see how that, that could be used just to like understand the limitations of the LLM. Like if it's not providing value, people are not going to keep opting in. Yeah. I mean, we're thinking about something like that too for, for Alice, right? Like we're, we're guiding people the right place in an application. And if they're not repeat users of that, that's a pretty clear indication that we're, you know, we, we, we got it wrong or, or whatever. So yeah, that makes sense. Go going back to your other question about like, you know, what are some mistakes that people are making? I think 
uh, Matt, like one thing we were talking about earlier today was like a lot of these, like, I think like AI platform companies, um, one of the things that I find like fascinating to look at is like, so I, I think there's like, there's like two categories that maybe have two different types of mistakes. One is like the AI platform companies that are potentially building the feature of a larger platform company. And like, and I think you kind of have to ask yourself, what are you doing that is like making, making it like, what, like, what is your defensibility, right? In this situation, the other category is like people who are building end user applications that are basically saying, okay, we're going to come in and disrupt X type of like marketing content tool or whatever, right? Like, and we're going to take an LLM based approach. Now, I think the advantage that these companies have over the existing uh, companies is that like the existing companies were maybe created in a world where they assumed they had no LLMs for content creation, et cetera. So they would have staffed up and, ac and accordingly built out a very like high marginal cost um, approach. Whereas like you have the opportunity to disrupt on cost if you can create something that's sufficiently high quality with a lot of automation. But that also means your go to market can't be like, you know, sales led. I think if you, I think you, like, you really want to, if you're, if your ultimate advantage is going to be much better margins, you would better be going to market in a way that is much lower margin. Right. So I think right. like some of these companies that are like, okay, we're going to do an AI based approach to X, Y, or Z. And we're competing with like you're making like a marketing tool and you're competing with like Canva. Canva can like wake up one day and decide I'm going to go build an LLM based approach and have, they have a massive distribution advantage. And so how are you going to counteract that? And is your whole company, including the go to market motion, actually taking into account that advantage? I think that's something that's going to be really interesting to see with a lot of these companies that are cropping up because they're under a lot of pressure with all this like venture funding that they're raising to grow very quickly. And it's like really easy to just be like, okay, the best way for me to grow quickly is to hire a sales team, which then fundamentally changes your unit economics. So you don't have that advantage that you would have had otherwise. I'm a big proponent of in these LLM companies, if their advantage is going to be costs, you got to also sell in a way that's cost efficient. Love it. We only have one minute left. Time flew by, but I, I love the comment. I've been thinking about this a lot. Vijay, we were, you know, we're wrapping up around, like thinking about um, this kind of stuff. Let's ask one more thing. I'm curious, like, Maybe we could just share like resources that we consume for kind of keeping up with, you know, what's going on with LLMs, product strategy. Like, um, are there things that people kind of look at that's really useful? Um, maybe we'll end on that note. My quick tip would be, yeah, I think there are so many newsletters nowadays that are sure. talking about LLMs. So, you know, you could kind of pick your favorite one. I think what's potentially more useful is trying to use as many products as you can yourself. Try it out, experiment get the firsthand experience and you'll develop the skills as well that we're all going to need in this new economy. I love it. Taste the soup. Is still a value at Heath, Pajemi? Yeah, taste the soup. Any other thoughts on on resources for like staying up to date on this? I think Twitter is pretty strong. A lot yeah. of noise there. A lot of noise. X, right? No. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgot about Twitter, X, Threads, whatever, Mastodon or whatever the other one was called. There's a lot of people putting interesting stuff there and then I kind of use that as a way to like bubble up, okay, now I need to try this out. There's like every other day, there's a new library, a new this, a new that, a new technique. And then like, if it has staying power on Twitter, then you're like, okay, time to block off some time on my calendar and be like, let's dig deep. Did you I, like, I like paper summaries on YouTube. That's like some of like, uh, like AI explained is a good one. There's like a whole bunch of them, but like, I think the ones that are just like, they're not like opinion thought pieces. They're just like a paper was published. Here's a summary of the paper. Turn it up yourself on like a thousand examples. What my data set said. If you got, if you have a few minutes, you can get through a lot of content. Uh, I'll quickly share. Like, I actually have found 
we didn't get to talk about this, but I think like the fundamentals of product strategy, I don't think it really changed, even though LLMs exist in the world. And so I've actually just found it really useful to just like revisit some like stuff on like Seven Powers um, is like a really interesting book on product and business strategy written by a Stanford, former Stanford economist. And now he's like doing VC stuff. But I'm finding that stuff extremely useful as I think about the shifting landscape with LLMs. Like it's the fundamentals are the same, but there's like some stuff that's changing up here. But knowing the, the kind of principles and fundamentals is very useful. So I will share that as my resource. We are out of time. Thank you guys so much. This was a delight. 